when you're working with a patient, so let's say come to your office and they need to be transitioned or switched to one of these eight biosimilars, how do you end up choosing between one of them? How do you decide in the real world and involve the patient in the decision-making and also justify the benefits for one or the other? Do you kind of go randomly? Do you stick with one you're more comfortable with? What are some of the differences between some of these molecules, if there are any? Well, that really is a very good question. And I'm going to give you a slightly facetious answer to start with. That applies not just to the biosimilars, but to foreign rheumatology, the whole range of drugs. In other words, when we have a rheumatoid patient, how do we decide what type of anti-TNF agent? Do we use Orencia? Do we use rituximab? And Andy Thompson, who's a rheumatologist in London, Ontario, had as an April Fool joke, one of these kids' games where you a little bit of paper, you open and close, you love me, you don't love me, and this sort of thing, with the various drug names in it. And he said, that's how you decide. And it really is very difficult because the head-to-head trials have shown them to be similar. And of course, with the biosimilars, they are by definition similar. So one goes on, I think, on a number of features, including the patient support groups. But I'm going to ask Dr. Rauder. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, theoretically, you would think all you need is an eight-sided dice, right? And then you throw it. But uh, you're right, there's factors. Maybe we'll go back and forth, um, Dr. Russell and I, and tell you some of those factors. Because I do think there are differences, patient factors, and then there's also going to be prescriber factors. Maybe I'll start off with some of the prescriber factors include knowledge of the product, knowledge of the company, knowledge of even sometimes it comes down to the representatives of the company, how much they've supported our field, how much they've supported the patients, right? And then, and Dr. Russell will talk a little bit more about the patient experience, but I think that's very important. There's also the, I guess, eight, eight different products, eight different companies. Also, what kind of experience has the company had with biologics? Do they have other biologics in their repertoire? Have they done the adequate research to demonstrate that, yes, they've shown by government laws that it's similar, but is that enough? In most cases, it is to get it um, available in the country, but maybe it's not enough for the prescriber. You know, they want to see a little bit more data. My name is Jaggy Rao. My name is Tony Russell, a rheumatologist, and you're listening to the Skin and Joints podcast. So today we're going to talk about the biosimilar conversation. Before we get into the conversation with Dr. Rao and Dr. Russell, we have a new voice on the podcast all the way from the east coast of the country, and I'm talking about Toronto, Ontario. I want to introduce Anastasia Montianu, who's a resident at the University of Toronto. Anastasia, we're so excited to have you as part of the Skin and Joints podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to join and I'm excited to hear from Dr. Russell and Dr. Rao shortly. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. So I actually grew up in Ukraine. I completed my undergraduate studies here at the University of Toronto and then kind of moved uh, for medical school to Ottawa. In residency, I had the opportunity to do some research projects and really my areas of interest have focused on immune-mediated skin diseases like systemic sclerosis, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, as well as cutaneous malignancies. It's been great to kind of have the research side alongside the clinical exposure throughout my residency. Your interests definitely align with the whole theme of the Skin and Joints podcast. That's totally what we're about, inflammatory skin disease, as well as sometimes inflammatory joint disease or a bit of both. 
Now, this is a prerequisite to be part of the podcast. Do you listen to podcasts yourself or is this completely foreign to you? In which case, we'll have to reevaluate everything. <laughs> yes, I definitely do listen to podcasts. And especially during my junior residency training, I really enjoyed listening to several dermatology podcasts. It's a great opportunity to hear about clinical experience from various dermatologists across the country, across the world. So I'm actually really excited to be here today and kind of be on the other end of things. On the other side. Well, we're looking forward to having you as part of this podcast and future episodes. And yeah, welcome to the team. Today's a very special episode. We're going to be looking at some key conversations with biosimilar navigating the patient and helping them transition successfully. Our special guests, Dr. Anthony Russell and Dr. Jaggi Rao, respectively a rheumatologist and a dermatologist with a lot of frontline experience helping patients. I want to get right into it, guys. This is probably the toughest question that we're going to ask you today on the podcast. And that is, tell us something about yourself that our viewers may not know about you. Do you have a secret talent, a sticker collection? Are you a coffee aficionado? Are you a swimmer? Are you a tennis player? Let's start with Dr. Russell. Well, some of the above. I would just point out, though, that in Alberta, I don't think anybody <clears throat> anybody considers us on the left. Doesn't matter what part of the country <laughs> you're sitting in. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't have any secret talents. What you see is what you get. Well, do you have a, a sport of interest, Dr. Russell? Yes, I play ping pong, if you call that a sport, okay. tennis, bit of squash. Okay, so that's a first for our podcast. So we haven't had any other specialist ping pong experts. So that's, that's good to know. And Jaggy, this is, so by the way, everyone, this is Jaggy's third time on the podcast. He's the all-star. And I think he's number two or number three in terms of the episode downloads. I think you're, the most popular one so far is the one you did, I believe, with the isotretinoin conversation, which is very, very practical. And there's a lot of great feedback, obviously, from all the two sessions you've done, but specifically that one, people found it very useful to use in their clinics the next day. Welcome, Jaggi. Thanks so much, Aaron. You're very kind and uh, I'm very honored to be with Dr. Russell. He's very humble. He's actually a very good tennis player. I've played with him and I vouch for And how about yourself, Jaggi? Anything to share? Are you a swimmer? Uh, you know, a little bit, but most of it, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of water around us. It's all indoor. So a little bit of tennis, a little bit of swimming, and a lot of nerdy stuff like watching television and movies. <laughs> Sounds good. We do that definitely here as well, quite a bit. So tell us about some of your childhood experiences that you think may have led you to becoming a dermatologist or a rheumatologist. Well, uh, Tony Russell here. I'm not going through childhood experiences. I can't recall those for a start. But uh, I was in training as a resident. I worked with a venereologist and we saw a lot of reactive arthritis down at the Siemens Hospital in Greenwich. And I learned about arthritis that way and became a sort of little bit of a resident expert. And then other residents started asking me about it. And that led to my interest growing and looking things up. That's very cool. Cheggy. Well, I guess one thing that comes into mind, I, I actually wanted to be a surgeon uh, initially. And then I saw the light and said you could do a little bit of that in dermatology. But when I walked into my dermatologist's preceptor's office, he said, what time did you get up to go for your surgery rotation? I told him six o'clock. And he said, there should only be one six o'clock in every day. And so that made me drop that very quickly and join dermatology. Love it. Yeah, there's only one six o'clock. We're getting close to it, by the way, depending on if you're in the east, that's three three twenty here in Vancouver. All right. We find it very interesting always to learn a little about what inspired you to go on a certain pathway or track. I think everyone has a really unique story. Now, looking at your current practices, can you briefly, just for our listeners, tell us about what kind of patients you see? 
Well, I do general rheumatology. I don't triage patients. In other words, I see all comers. Perhaps the waiting list might vary a little bit. I have particular interest in rheumatoid and in ankylosing spondylitis, but also I've published in fibromyalgia and other fields. So I do really very general rheumatology. Yeah, I also have a pretty general practice. I don't curtail who I see. Um, in fact, that's part of the great things about both rheumatology and dermatology that I like is not knowing what I'm walking into and being able to think off my feet, hopefully help people. And particularly now with the great medications that we have and different options for treatment, there's more that we could do today than we've ever been able to do in the past. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, these are life-changing therapies that we probably didn't even have 10 years ago as much diversity in terms of a choice for our patients. We can dive into the subject of this podcast, talking about the biosimilars and the biosimilar switch policies. So could you briefly tell our colleagues who are tuning in today a bit about how Alberta structured their biosimilar policy? So I can maybe start speaking from the dermatology point of view. Prior to biosimilars, we have basically we have a public plan and we have a private plan, is my understanding. And we have about 50% of people in our province who are part of each one. Essentially, the public plan is unfortunately in debt, if not broke, you know, and, and that, that I think is very true across the provinces. So there definitely needs some cost cutting measures and different techniques and innovations to save costs in order to move forward. So that's where we have the biosimilar switch policy. And essentially, it states that nowadays we have medications that are very similar to originators when it comes to biologics, similar in almost every possible way. But once they've demonstrated that, then the government basically mandates that you must initiate people on that or switch them if they're on a public plan to that in order to save cost. Well, just a brief comment. I mean, first of all, I'd echo Jackie's comments about budget. I remember talking to the Minister of Health to persuade him to arrange for his colleagues to approve a new biologic, or new at that time, biologic. And after listening to my argument very carefully and politely, he said, well, look, if you can tell me how that will help me save money for the healthcare system, I'm sure I'll approve it. It's that sustainability conversation that, you know, we all need to be having, especially in today's environment. I remember in BC, when this discussion was even coming up at the start, there was a lot of different groups with a lot of different interests who advocated for either side. And I think being first out of the gates, we kind of were the test province. It's being shown to be successful, not only in terms of the sustainability of the system and amount of dollars saved, but also from a frontline patient perspective. And we'll get to that sort of lens later on in the podcast. Yeah. So we're excited to learn about how things transitioned in Alberta so that we can hopefully incorporate that into the Ontario biosimilar switch policy, which we don't have yet here. But in terms of the transition, how long did that kind of take for each of the medications from your clinical perspective? Okay, if I let, let me go first. It came in two stages. First of all, for example, infliximab or Remicade as we had then, we were told that no patients after a certain date, and we were given a few months, no patients could be enrolled in, in Remicade brand. They had to be on the biosimilar, one or other of the two biosimilars. That was the initial stage. And the hope was that people would switch all the Remicade patients over to one of these biosimilars of infliximab. That simply didn't happen. So following that, after a while, and after BC had already done this, we were told that all patients taking infliximab Remicade, as it was, would have to switch to a biosimilar by a certain time frame. And we were given initially a very short time frame, but we talked to our BC colleagues who said they had been given six months in order to discuss it properly with patients. 
we then pointed out to the government officials that if we were not given time to discuss it with patients and emphasize that it was a safe transition from our perspective, then that would cause problems. And so the gap was extended. And then future changes, the same thing happened to Etanercept. Um, we were given initially no new patients could be enrolled. And then subsequently, we were given this time six months to inform patients by a certain deadline, they would all have to take a biosimilar. And then the same thing, we were getting used to it by that time, the same thing happened with adalimumab and Humira. Can I ask you a follow-up question on that? Did you have to bring all these patients back in person to the clinic to rediscuss this with them? And how were you able to accommodate so many patients being treated with these medications at the same time? Well, fortunately, rheumatologists were not using a lot of infliximab at that time. It was an important drug, but we'd often moved on. So yes, we had to bring all of them back to talk to individually. However, with COVID, we started doing virtual consultations. And then we realized that actually that was a much simpler and easier way of explaining the issues to patients was by the telephone or, if necessary, with a video conference. In dermatology, we don't have as many indications for the biologics as rheumatology does, but I would echo a similar situation. I guess the one medication that we were most affected by was the adalimumab switch, and that only happened this year in Alberta. I think it was May, is that correct? Yeah. May 2022. And so we had a flood of people who were in the public plan who would give us a call and say, what does this letter mean? So they received a letter from the government that said, you know, we're no longer going to be covering Humira, uh, adalimumab, and you have to switch to one of the other eight possibilities. Please consult with your prescribing physician, who in this case, the dermatologist. Uh, and it wasn't a flood. I mean, they received the letter about a year before in 2021, around May, June. So they had a lot of time to prepare. And, you know, in, in most cases in dermatology, we would only use it for either psoriasis or another condition called HS hydradenitis suppurativa. So yeah, personally, I had maybe about 50 people, maybe a little bit more, who required a switch. Because even for psoriasis, there were other medications that we moved on to. Adalimumab is great, but there, there were other ones. So mostly it was hydradenitis suppurativa for derm. That's a very interesting point. Let's focus, let's say, on adalimumab in that case. And you mentioned, Dr. Rao, that there's currently eight biosimilars available for this one innovator which gets, <clears throat> I think, people curious and very interested. I'm sure all our listeners are intently waiting for us to ask this question is, knowing that there's eight, when you're working with a patient, so let's say come to your office and they need to be transitioned or switched to one of these eight biosimilars, how do you end up choosing between one of them? How do you decide in the real world and involve the patient in the decision-making and also justify the benefits for one or the other? Do you kind of go randomly? Do you stick with one you're more comfortable with? What are some of the differences between some of these molecules, if there are any? Well, that really is a very good question. And I'm going to give you a slightly facetious answer to start with. That applies not just to the biosimilars, but to foreign rheumatology, the whole range of drugs. In other words, when we have a rheumatoid patient, how do we decide what type of anti-TNF agent? Do we use Orencia? Do we use Rituximab? And Andy Thompson, who's a rheumatologist in London, Ontario, had, as an April Fool joke, one of these kids' games where you a little bit of paper, you open and close, you love me, you don't love me, and this sort of thing, with the various drug names in it. And he said, that's how you decide. And it really is very difficult because the head-to-head -head trials have shown them to be similar. And of course, with the biosimilars, they are, by definition, similar. 
So one goes on, I think, on a number of features, including the patient support groups. But I'm going to ask Dr. Rauder. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, theoretically, you would think all you need is an eight-sided dice, right? And then you throw it. But uh, you're right, there's factors. Maybe we'll go back and forth, um, Dr. Russell and I, and tell you some of those factors. Because I do think there are differences, patient factors, and then there's also going to be prescriber factors. Maybe I'll start off with some of the prescriber factors include knowledge of the product, knowledge of the company, knowledge of even sometimes it comes down to the representatives of the company, how much they've supported our field, how much they've supported the patients, right? And then, and Dr. Russell will talk a little bit more about the patient experience, but I think that's very important. There's also the, I guess, eight, eight different products, eight different companies. Also, what kind of experience has the company had with biologics? Do they have other biologics in their repertoire? Have they done the adequate research to demonstrate that, yes, they've shown by government laws that it's similar, but is that enough? In most cases, it is to get it um, available in the country, but maybe it's not enough for the prescriber. You know, they want to see a little bit more data. Also, what, are, what other advantages do they give to the patient, including pain-free, uh, their actual delivery mechanism? So the competition has allowed for improvements in the delivery of the drug, maybe a smaller needle, perhaps less material within the drug itself that would add for ease and less pain less reactions upon injection. There's quite a few factors there, and we can go into a little bit more detail if you'd like. And I just wanted to add, I mean, you know, some really excellent points you've stated there with regards to even the formulation consideration. So biosimilars are highly similar, but not all of them have the same excipients, or uh, you have some that are lower in citrate concentration. And we know that sometimes there's a link between pain on the injection site and the amount of citrate that may be in that formulation. And we can go into a little bit more, but I'd love to hear from Dr. Russell is from the patient perspective or the patient side, what factors make you kind of lean a certain way depending on how you involve the patient? The number of issues, first of all, occasionally the patient will tell you that their neighbors had a certain biosimilar that they're very happy with. And so that's a good reason uh, for picking the same one. It's a good patient positive support. My own experience with the patient support groups and particularly the forms, I mean, we enroll patients in the patient support groups, sometimes the forms are needlessly complicated. And frankly, I would therefore avoid that agent for, simply for that reason, which is a personal one rather than the patient-related one. The drugs are very similar, but there are differences, as Jackie pointed out, that are, for example, duration of stability could be a factor. If patients are traveling, they might have no fridge access for some time. So a drug that will be stable for more than a couple of weeks at room temperature could be important. I just want to add, that's a really practical point. Something I didn't even think about is the travel and how many days outside of the fridge is that product stable? We are talking about different ones. For example, Hiramose, you have like a 21-day shelf life. You look at the innovator, it's 14 days as an example. So small things like that, that we might not think about important for the patient. Anything else to mention in terms of any other factors that might make you think, let's go with this biosimilar, or is it also situational dependent? Obviously, some of the factors you mentioned. Well, going back to what Dr. Russell said about the patient support program, this is absolutely critical, not only to initiate the patient on the drug, but also to sustain them and to have direct interaction with the patient and maybe even identify any problems potentially that the patient might have either directly related or indirectly related to the drug. So um, if you have a company that is well-known and a large company, the chances are their patient support program will be sustainable. 
Whereas some of the newer patient support programs are questionable. I'm not saying that they're bad, but they're not necessarily as established. So if you have a big company like, say, Novartis, right, that is already well-established as a biologic company, has several biologics across the realm, you might be more inclined to trust their patient support program would be sustainable. If I may, another aspect of that is having a single person contact for the doctor to know that I just have to phone one person. Because some of the patient support groups, you know, you have a a switchboard and you have to press different buttons to get wherever you want to go. Whereas for some of them, I can simply dial a number or send an email and I know I'll get an immediate response from the relevant individual who's been a patient support person for many years often. One, One last thing I'm thinking, when you talk about patients with dexterity issues and think about arthritis or other inflammatory conditions, the actual auto-injector or the pre-filled syringe, how it feels and how comfortable the grip might be, I find at least in, in practice can be a determining factor. And I'm not sure if that also is something you guys see. Oh, very, very much so. I think so across the board. Yes. Okay. So I'm just wondering, how do you think this will impact the provincial government in terms of the cost savings as a result of the switch? Oh, I can start and tell you that it's huge. So I didn't realize this. And it's not just one or two dollars or even a thousand dollars, ten thousand or a hundred thousand or even a million. Um, One projected number that I have is between 2019 to 2020 in the fiscal year, we're expecting a cost saving of almost a third of a billion dollars. That's over $300 million of cost saving. That's huge. I mean, that could be put towards other things potentially to help healthcare. Um, The original switch, that is to say, simply saying that no new drug, no new Remicade can be initiated. You have to initiate with a biosimilar. That actually had a small impact. And I think the government were rather disappointed. They would hope that we would have switched everybody. That's why they brought in the mandated switch which has indeed made a big difference. I remember articles initially, some interesting viewpoints. It was definitely a hot button issue back in the day, I guess a few years now, when things were starting to move forward. So very relevant. But in the hundreds of millions is what we're talking about from a sustainability. Yeah, you know, I, I can tell you a little little situation. So when they first talked to some of the key dermatologists in Alberta about the biosimilar policy, some people were up in arms. You know, they were saying, there's no way we don't want to switch from Humira because we know it well. And you know, uh, granted, the company that made Humira, Abvi, they, they took all this work to do the research, and there is that. But the moment they mention that it's going to save $250-plus a year over the next couple of years, at least, everybody became silent. You know, it was a deal breaker, a no-brainer to do the switch, because that saves there, a there's lot. There's no argument. No, no argument at all. The numbers kind of speak for themselves, and uh, certainly from a public perspective. I- I would just, I mean, I think what Jackie said is obviously critical, but it's also very important to remember that you don't approach the patient by saying, we're saving the government money, we're going to give you a cheaper drug. That is not the right approach. A hundred percent. And we'll get to that too, is these discussions with the patient on the front line, so important because I think our colleagues are not, not trained on how to use behavioral science to mitigate the nocebo effect or behavioral psychology, seeking to understand where they're coming from too. And I find a lot of patients are just anxious from watching a media story or how it's being described even by a public health official, for example, in the media. So we'll get to that. Now, just a quick question. This is kind of an opportunity because we have both of you on the podcast is maybe you guys touched on this. Would you say the dermatology community or the rheumatology community is generally more comfortable with biosimilar usage? Does one have more experience than the other? Sorry to keep you guys hanging. Don't you love a cliffhanger? Please join us for part two of our conversation next week where Dr. Russell 
and Dr. Rao share their biosimilar secrets. Also, Aaron you forgot to mention, as a reminder, we kinda have to say this, the opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only, and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thank you to Sandoz for supporting today's episode with a medical educational grant. By the way, we know that you love the episode title, The Biosimilar Transition Train. Let's hop on it. Chat soon.